I come before you today humbled by the realization that the lives and futures of families like mine are affected by the decisions made by FDA. Should you choose to confirm me, I'll make it my mission to fight for those families every single day and ensure that the FDA puts their interests first in everything we do. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Scott Gottlieb testifying in April 2017 about why he wanted to be FDA commissioner. Two years later, as Gottlieb prepares to leave the agency, how has the reality of running FDA compared to his early goals? On Wednesday, I went to the commissioner's office to ask him as part of a wide-ranging conversation about his priorities, legacy, and unfinished business. You know, when you're at a think tank looking at things in the abstract, it's very different than when you're running a regulatory agency and you have public health obligations. You'll hear from Gottlieb in a moment, but just a reminder that if you like Politico Pulse Check, you can help us by rating or reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Politico Pulse Check. And you should also check the show notes where we link to stories, previous episodes with Commissioner Gottlieb, and other items that we reference during the conversation. And now, let's get to that conversation with Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, welcome back to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for having me. We weren't expecting you back so soon. The secret to cut the line is just to announce that you're resigning. It worked. Now, here you are. One of your colleagues, I was asking around, trying to figure out what, what to ask you today. One of your colleagues said I should ask if you don't love America anymore, if that's why you're leaving the FDA. Feel free to weigh in on that. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes a pipe's just a pipe. And, uh, you know, the reason I'm leaving is the reason I gave. Um, this, it got really difficult um, commuting from Connecticut and being away from my family uh, basically for two straight years. I saw my kids on Saturday. Um, but, um, you know, I'd be home late Friday night and I'd be back in Washington Sunday and mostly working all day Sunday. So two years of that with, uh, with three young kids got hard. Reporters like me, my colleague, Sarah Carlin Smith, Sarah Overmall, others have been trying to figure out the reasons behind your departure. Do you understand why that has been such a source of curiosity? I don't understand why it's been a source of curiosity. You know, I, you know, obviously I love this job and I'm very, um, uh, unhappy to leave it. I, I would have liked to have uh, done it for longer. Um, and it was a difficult decision. And the week after I resigned, you know, emotionally, it was very difficult. You know, I was thinking that whole week, what did I do? Was this the right decision? But, you know, I'd been in it two years and I worked this job 150%. I think that that was um, largely apparent to people on the outside. Um, this was really a 24 7 job. I, I didn't work from home Fridays. I, you know, was home late Friday night. Um, again, would spend part of Saturday with my kids and go out with my wife Saturday night, and then Sunday I'd be back at work. Um, two straight years of that's uh, difficult. I think in retrospect, had I, had I the opportunity to do it over again, I would have moved my family down here at the outset, uh, but I didn't. Speaking on behalf of journalists, I think one reason it is such a source of curiosity is there could be a reason that you're leaving that could be of interest to the American people. For instance, if you push too hard on tobacco and that was an issue, or if the White House had a different vision for the FDA, that would seem to be of interest too. Yeah, well, on the tobacco, I understand the proximity of, you know, when I announced on that Tuesday versus there was reports that I had been at the White House that Friday uh, uh, briefing on a tobacco meeting. But the reality is, you know, there was always going to be something 
uh, immediately before I resigned and something coming up immediately after I resigned. There's always things happening here every week. I think with respect to the tobacco issue in particular, um, I would hope we put that to rest with the announcement we made last week, where not only did we advance the policy that we intended to, but you know we got strong White House support. The, the secretary put out a statement. I had a White House fact sheet issued. Um, the White House press secretary uh, retweeted um, some of the statements. Kellyanne Conway over the weekend retweeted some of these statements with respect to that. Um, that announcement. You had the chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and the head of domestic policy council, Joe Grogan, both affirming that there was going to be um, steps taken to address the youth uh, youth addiction to, to nicotine and e-cigarettes and, and additional tobacco regulation coming. So I think the strong statement from the administration, which we would have had regardless, but I would think that strong that strong statement from the administration and the fact that we got that policy out in the time frame that we, that we intended to would, would put those rumors to rest. Vaping has been a major subject of, of your tenure. It has been something you've weighed in on quite a bit. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the Washington Times, a conservative paper, has an editorial out today, Wednesday morning, saying that your resignation, quote, comes at just the right time. And they specifically criticize you for pushing vaping regulations and suggest you became an, quote, avenging angel for the nanny state. With the Scott Gottlieb of three years ago, who worked for conservative think tanks like AEI and argued against regulations from the FDA, would that Scott Gottlieb have recognized the description of Commissioner Gottlieb? Well, remember the Scott Gottlieb of two years ago um, probably was a recipient of editorials um, in, in the Washington Times that applauded me for pushing off the application deadlines on, on the electronic cigarette products to allow them time to come through an appropriate series of regulatory gates at the time that we proposed to regulate nicotine and combustible cigarettes to render them minimally and non-addictive with a vision that we were, would be able to more more rapidly migrate adult smokers off of traditional cigarettes onto modified risk products like e-cigarettes potentially, um, which would pose far less health risks. That was the vision. We embraced it. That was our plan. Uh, But what changed our mind was when Mitch Zeller, the head of the Tobacco Center, came into my office on August 31st, 2018, with data from the 2018 National Youth Tobacco Survey showing epidemic use of e-cigarettes. And I, I just want to jump in because you've, you've said some of these things about the vaping strategy before. What I am curious about is Scott Gottlieb, the regulator, versus Scott Gottlieb, who's outside the FDA, thinking that this agency was doing too much. For example, uh, response letters to drug companies. When, when drug companies would apply and have their approvals turned down, when you were at AEI, you argued that those response letters should be public. Now that you're commissioner, those letters well, have not been I mean, public. separate issue. I mean, I still, I still would argue that there should be more transparency where we can have more transparency. I think the, the Scott Gottlieb, who's running a regulatory agency, needs to weigh how I allocate agency resources against public health considerations and, and ask, is trying to cre- increase transparency around complete response letters the best use of the public, the finite public health resources I have, whether it's the lawyers or the people in CEDAR who would have to redact those letters. And that was the that was the struggle that we had internally. Um, look, you know, when you're at a think tank looking at things in the abstract, it's very different than when you're running a regulatory agency and you have public health obligations. And what what I had to make decisions against, first and foremost, were my public health obligations. I, you don't have the luxury in these jobs of thinking about things in an abstract fashion all the time. You have a set of obligations, and you need to carry out the mission of the agency. And I feel very comfortable that we made decisions against a good set of public health considerations and did what was right and through multiple settings and multiple tough decisions. So was Scott Gottlieb on the outside looking in wrong? 
Scott Gottlieb on the outside writing op-eds at, uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, which were largely consistent with, you know, my how I executed the mission on the inside. And I'm, I'm proud of uh, I'm proud of the 800 articles that I wrote on the outside. And I only know that number because the Senate managed to pull them all during my confirmation process. But um, yes, you're very prolific. And you put me and my <laughs> colleagues to shame for your productivity. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of difficult practical considerations on the inside that um, don't always just hew to a particular sort of regulatory ideology. They have, they, there are important public health considerations and things that this agency has to do to protect consumers um, that sometimes put us in places where we are. Yes, we are impacting um, competition. We are impacting um, the free flow of information. All the things that, as a conservative, you want to uh, you want to try to promote. You try to. There's sometimes a hard balancing against uh, public health considerations. Speaking of communication strategy, from the day you were confirmed to today, FDA put out press announcements on virtually everything: hand sanitizer, heart valves, milk cheese. Do, do you want to guess how many press announcements FDA put out under your tenure? Uh, I would suspect it's a little more than one a day. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. It's 481. I think you've been in seat about 465 days, not counting weekend uh, or, or government holidays. That's much faster than the Obama administration. Why was that a focus of, of your time here? What was the strategy behind being so proactive, not just with press announcements, but you're doing interviews with me, other folks, you're, you're always available. What was the rationale? Well, I think that communications and policy communications is a very important part of effective policymaking. I think that, you know, it's not just that we have to explain what we're doing very clearly so people understand what the goals are of the agency, but I think in order to advance the policy, it's very clear that people have a, they, a accurate vision of what we're trying to achieve so we can get broad consensus, broad buy-in. Um, and so that was the goal. I mean, that was really the, the thinking behind trying to be um, you know, communicative, trying to put out very clear statements around uh, the rules we put out, the guidance we put out, so people understood what, what the vision was and how the different things that we were doing fit into a broader public health vision. Why don't more Trump officials follow your lead? Well, I think there are agencies that do. You know, part of it is that it's uh, it's resource intensive and it's time intensive. I would spend my Sundays probably clearing between six and twelve documents and writing some of those documents, um, writing some of my own speeches. Um, you know, drafting statements. This was a extremely resource intensive endeavor, not just for me, but but for the entire staff here, our Office of Media Affairs. Uh, people in the centers who drafted some of these statements. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, uh, I think it did enable us to advance things in a way that allowed them to be enduring. You've kind of become known as the tobacco commissioner. Not only have there been all these actions you just referenced, this has been a major focus of press attention. I'm curious, when we look back at your tenure at FDA, what do you think your major accomplishment was on medical devices? Well, look, I think with respect to medical devices, I think it's, um, you know, taking a fresh look at the 510K approval process and looking to modernize that and re-adjudicate um, how, we, um, how we look at the predicate process. Trying to, the way I see the 510K process is it's very backward looking. Um, you know, people who are bringing new devices forward to try to f and trying to find predicates to compare the devices to are constantly looking back at old predicates. And I think we need to have a forward-looking process where people have the potential to create new predicates through the de novo process, which we try to create more efficiencies around cre creating going through the de novo process, um, as well as re-adjudicate some of the old predicates. And so we started down a path of creating 
a policy framework that could allow the agency to re-adjudicate some of the existing predicates. I think that conceptually is a very important um, sort of policy uh, advance to step into. I think more discreetly in terms of you know discrete policy reforms, I would point to some of the things we did on digital health where we move towards a whole different paradigm of regulation, moving towards a firm-based approach. Um, I think that that kind of framework is going to be something that we can use in other other contexts of, um, of new technology. And then in terms of the unfinished business, the stuff that we opened the door to but, but remains unfinished, I would point to the legislation um, trying to look towards a modern framework for in vitro diagnostics, the IVCT legislation, which we obviously advanced substantive TA to the Hill. Um, and that will, you know, that will continue to move forward on Capitol Hill. I had a call today about it with some members of Congress. I have some meetings about it. That's one of the things I want to take a little bit further before I before I leave this job. In, in the two weeks you have in left. two weeks I have left. You just went through a number of different priorities, both things that you're working on, things that might have been unfinished. I want to take those apart as, as much as we can in our time. Getting back to device safety, there have been a lot of questions about device safety in your time here at FDA, some driven by investigative journalism, documentaries, some your own statements, too. It does seem like there's a new development every week with device safety. What what does FDA need to do in the next few years specifically after you are gone to make sure that devices are safer? Well, I think I think devices are safe, and I think the process is very rigorous. A lot of the questions have surrounded um, a small subset of devices where we, frankly, have taken significant action. When you look at eShore, where we that product has effectively been taken off the market, we took um, uh, strong action um, against certain uh, other women's health devices. Um, you know, I, I think that the uh, the device review process is rigorous overall. I think where the questions have been historically, and this is over a long period of time, is around the 510K process. And people people from the outside looking in, believing that devices should be regulated like, like drugs and everything should be a PMA application and devices should go through, you know, randomized, prospectively randomized placebo-controlled trials. There's a reason why we don't do that. Um, you know, devices, the device statute itself is a much more modern statute that allows us to adjust our level of regulatory touch um, to be commensurate with the risk of the device. Not every device um, proposes the same kinds of risks to patients. An implantable device could be much more risky than you know, a, a device that's just a tool in the hands of a physician being used um, to help assist them with surgery. So the 510K process allows us to regulate lower risk devices differently than we would regulate higher risk devices. I think if you look at what's happened over time and even the time period I've been here, um, the 510Ks have gotten much more complex. The, the the length of 510Ks has grown significantly. There's much more clinical data in 510Ks. So I think the process over time has gotten more rigorous. But the fundamental architecture of the device review process where we have this more titrated approach that allows us to adjust our level of regulatory touch to the perceived risk of the device or the known risk of the device, I think it's fundamentally sound. But when you say, you know, devices, device safety has been under assault over a period of time, I know those weren't your exact words. No, those were not I think, my words. I think what's really, uh, you know, being criticized is the the framework and people who, who are arguing, this is what I hear, that, you know, certain devices shouldn't be going through a, a process like the 510K process. That's a much longer debate. Um, and I think fundamentally that process is very sound. The FDA's budget proposal does seek to let FDA provisionally approve devices. So essentially moving devices to market with less data. How do you reconcile that with this focus on device safety? Well, the the, the budget proposal builds in a number of things. And I think one of the most fundamental things in, in what we did in the budget, what we've done even administratively, and we've allocated more resources from my office to this function, 
is trying to move towards a more active surveillance system when it comes to medical devices. And so this is another paradigm change in terms of how the agency looks at device safety, where the the long-term goal, and we got money in the 2020 budget for this, we also got money in the 2019 budget, so it's actually been appropriated, as well as some money we've been we've reallocated internally, to try to move towards a system where we use data derived from electronic health records to engage in more active surveillance of medical devices in the post-market. We've never had that capability anywhere really in the agency. We have it a little bit in a sentinel system when it comes to drugs, but mostly we use claims data to do retrospective analyses of safety questions, particularly on the drug side. Um, we've never really been able to move towards a more active surveillance system using EHR data. I think the first place that we're going to fundamentally um, be able to do that on a broad basis is going to be in the device space. And this is really the vision of what we've been trying to do with respect to uh, with respect to device safety. The goal in the 2020 budget, the proposal we put forward, is to get 10 million lives, EHR lives, into a database that would allow us to do active surveillance in the post-market. You mentioned digital health. It, it seems difficult to regulate this field. Because in many cases, the harm to patients might not be clear. I normally wear an Apple Watch. I took it off because it was interfering with the microphone that I'm, I'm speaking into. But that Apple Watch has an EKG built in. And I, I think the worst thing that can happen is it gives me false data about my, my heart rate. That's different than, say, contaminated lettuce or a drug that's linked with patient deaths. Do you worry about the, the products getting ahead of the evidence when it comes to some of these very hyped digital health innovations. I think you're not, when you say the worst thing that can happen is the watch can give you false data, that's the worst thing that can happen that can report an outcome that's not actually occurring. I think what, what, what you hear people expressing angst about more often isn't what you just said, but, but, but people um, worrying that the devices are going to be able to report data that might not have clinical significance. It would report a you know, uh, paroxysmal AFib, so an intermittent arrhythmia that might not be clinically significant, but you actually had the arrhythmia. Um, my view is that if a, if a device can otherwise report information that could be actionable, could help inform you about your health, could help prompt you to see a physician, we as regulators should err on the side of trying to um, allow patients to have access to tools that can otherwise inform them, as long as it's informing them accurately. It's not up to us to decide whether or not that information is immediately actionable, whether or not the patient should, should or shouldn't have um, access to it. That's a decision to be made by the patient, by the provider. But if a tool is, as long as the tool's um, providing reliable information, accurate information, if a, if a patient wants that information, I think they should have access to it. And the other thing I would say also is that if you look at the history of digital tools more broadly, and let's step out from digital health tools, but just digital tools more broadly, the use cases have always evolved um, over time. You know, tools have been introduced with a with with a one use. For them, one use case. But what we've seen is once they were available, application developers, others came along and figured out other app, other ways to use these tools once they got into the hands of consumers and once enough consumers had them that there was a business case to be made. Think of the think of the camera on the back of your phone. When that was first put in the back of your phone, it was a camera. Now it's a sensor. Now it's used for all different kinds of functions. I think you're going to see the same thing with digital health tools, which is once we are able to create a framework where these can come onto the market for one specific use, P 
people are going to create applications that once the hardware is in the hands of consumers that are going to have you know much broader set of uses and that's going to create a create a whole new set of opportunities. But if we withhold these digital health tools, these, these hardware platforms, until all the use cases are worked out, I don't think you're ever going to see the investment in the kind of software that can f- unlock the full capabilities of these tools. I'm trying to use the time I have with you to run down the list of priorities that you yourself have established, going back to your first speech to FDA in May of 2017. In your opening remarks, you said, quote, our greatest immediate challenge is the problem of opioid abuse. And yet, a few months ago, FDA approved Desuvia, a synthetic opioid, hundreds of times more powerful than morphine. Why approve this powerful new drug amid an opioid epidemic? A couple of things with with Desuvia. I mean, the the easy headline um, is that it's 100 times more powerful than morphine. Actually, what Desuvia is, is it's a very small amount of a powerful uh, formulation of, of an opioid. And the reason why you'd want to formulate something like that is because it's designed for sublingual administration. It's designed to allow the opioid to be put under the tongue and get in the blood very quickly. And if you took a a less potent opioid and designed it for that purpose, it would be a very large pill and it would never be absorbed. And so the only way to create um, something that could get absorbed quickly into the blood through sublingual administration would be to use something that was very potent. But it's actually an amount of opioid that's equivalent to 15 milligrams of morphine, which isn't a a trivial amount of morphine, but it's an amount of morphine that is commonly prescribed in emergent situations for someone who might need a bedside procedure, for example. And I've been in many situations as a physician you know, where I've been bedside with a patient where I needed to do an emergent procedure, you think of of placing a test tube, where you couldn't get IV access, and so you couldn't administer intravenous uh, um, pain sedation in that setting. And having a sublingual um, administration that could provide enough analgesia in that setting could could be Um, life-saving. The other thing to remember with Desuvia is, um, you know, this was, and I talked about at the time, we did enter into um, you know, an arrangement with uh, the Pentagon where we, we committed to prioritize products that they felt were priority products for the battlefield and for frontline soldiers. Um, and their priority list isn't 30 products. It's not 50 products. It's about 10. And Desuvia was one of them. Was one of them. And we, we, we worked out that arrangement um, as you know, um, a compromise for an effort that was underway to try to strip FDA of all authority to approve products that were intended for frontline sh- soldiers and for the battlefield, because we felt that it was important to have FDA review of products intended for the battlefield. And what we committed to do was give products that they prioritize, which is a small list, breakthrough-like touch within the agency. Um, so there was a there was an imperative with respect to Desuvia that did factor into how the agency, at least the process by which um, it was developed, not by which it was reviewed and not how we assess risk-benefit, but certainly the process which was developed. I think the larger question, though, with Desuvia, and I said this at the time, and I'm going to be saying this again before I leave, isn't the question of Desuvia per se. I think these questions come up with respect to every time we approve a new opioid that's you know, perceived as powerful, which is, and it's a fair question, which is why is FDA approving another opioid, yet another opioid that has the potential to be diverted and abused in the setting of an opioid crisis? And that's a reasonable question. And it's a question of whether or not we should have a comparative superiority standard when it comes to the approval of new opioids. I think we need to address that question. Um, I I don't like addressing the question and litigating it in the context of individual approvals. I think it's a broad policy question that we ought to consider wholesale, and we are considering it, and considering whether or not 
um, the agency needs different authorities when it comes to opioids to put in place some kind of comparative superiority standard to say that if a new opioid is coming to the market that has the potential for diversion and abuse, should it be differentiated in a way that it's offering some advantage over the existing therapeutic armamentarium? And I would, I would argue that if we had such a standard, DeSuvi would probably meet it. Um, because it is differentiated in a way. It can be used in clinical settings where other drugs aren't available. But we should we should ask the question in a broader setting. And the, one, the last thing I'll say, and you open the door to it, so I'll just say it. Um, the issue of, of whether or not Desuvia is a drug that could be abused, um, it does have risks associated with it. It does have a risk of diversion and abuse. But I think it's a, a risk that is going to be significantly mitigated in terms of how this drug is administered, where it's administered. The risk really is a risk of diversion by healthcare professionals because this drug is going to be administered in inpatient settings. It's going to be tightly controlled in PIXA systems. That's how it's going to be delivered in, in inside a healthcare setting. And so the risk you worry about is will healthcare professionals try to divert it in those settings and abuse it? And we've seen that. That does happen. Happens much less now. There's much tighter controls, but it does happen. But that's really the risk that you talking about. I think the way this was portrayed was somehow this drug's going to be available, you know, law, prescribed in outpatient settings by general practitioners, and it's going to become a street drug or a choice drug of abuse. Um, you're talking about there's a risk of diversion and abuse here, but it's narrow. This administration pushed the right to try bill, which let patients essentially go around FDA to get unapproved uh, drugs. It was roundly opposed by cancer organizations. HHS is currently conducting a review of its fetal tissue research. Scientific organizations don't like that either. Before he came into office, this president was a loud critic at times of vaccinations. You're seen as a champion of science. What would you say to the general public and to staff who are concerned about your departure and the fate of science in this administration? Well, I think that this, this um, agency has been very rigorous in terms of how we've approached public health issues. Uh, I think we have affirmed the importance of science-based decision-making. Um, I don't see any departure um, from how this agency makes decisions. You know, and I would obviously um, quibble with your underlying sort of statement and assumption um, up front. But, but which, just, which part? Well, all the parts, but just in terms of just in terms of looking at FDA, I'm very confident in the process that's underway here. And 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 you know the the decision making process in in FDA isn't just the sort of consequence and the result of things that I did over the last two years. It's the consequence of what how this agency has gone about its work over decades. And I think this agency, um, the rigor by which we make decisions, the importance of the decisions we make, the way they impact people's lives. I think that we, we have really affirmed over a long period of time the importance of science-based decision-making and regulation and policy. Thinking about who's taking over for you, Ned Sharpless, head of the National Cancer Institute, why pick him as your successor? As far as I know, he's never worked in FDA. You had a track record here before you came back. He's only been in government about a year and a half. What did you see in Dr. Sharpless? Well, I didn't pick him. The secretary did. Secretary Alex Azar. But you made him. no secret that you favor him for well, this role. Well, I, I I made no secret that that I think he's um, highly capable and very competent, uh, and I think he has a very good ethic uh, to be running this agency. And so, why why do I like Ned? Because I've worked with him. Um, because I think he's uh, deeply public health minded. Because I think he understands the mission of the agency. He's done work with FDA. He plays basketball with FDA reviewers. And I think his underlying ethic and his underlying approach to public health issues is very consistent with this, with the way this agency thinks about its mission. We've talked about your priorities. What would you have started if you had been here for say another year? Started uh, more recently. 
That's interesting. It's an interesting question. I, I think that a, a lot of what we um, a lot of what we did uh, really reflect the things that I came in thinking about, the things that I got generated during during the time that I was here. I think some of the things that I might have pushed on that I was looking at doing um, were some things around food safety, where we were looking at implementing. I brought in Frank Giannis, the head of food safety at uh, at Walmart, and we are looking at technology that will allow the agency to think differently about how uh, it does track and trace with respect to the food supply chain and produce in particular. Those are things that will get underway that I haven't been here long enough to uh, to get started. There's a couple other things like that that are in process. I want to leave some some of that work uh, for you know Dr. Sharpless to make a decision on whether whether and how he takes them forward. The other thing that I, I would have liked to have pushed further along were the implementation of some of the authorities that we got under the Support Act, where we got we worked on for over a very long time and got some substantial new authorities with respect to dealing with the opioid crisis. And I won't be here um, to see all of those through and get implemented, but I'm very confident they will be. For example, the one that you know I'm probably going to narrowly miss the opportunity to announce that was very important to me was requiring the immediate release opioids to be put in blister packs. I think that fundamentally changes how providers prescribe IR formulations of opioids like Vicodin and Percocet, requiring them to be in one or two-day blister packs. It's going to push much more the prescribing towards one or two-day dispensing as opposed to a bottle of 30 pills. That will get out. Uh, that's certainly going to get out. Um, but I worked very hard on that, and I would like to have been here to get that over the finish line. Last question. You did two separate stints in the George W. Bush administration. You're at FDA, you left the government, you came back. What are the odds that you will come back to government service? I'll leave that to you to decide. <laughs> What's your, your life, your career? Look, um, I would love an opportunity to serve in the government again. I don't know, I don't know, you know whether that will come to fruition. I think every time I've stepped out of uh, one of these jobs, I accepted the fact that it might be my last time in the government. And that last time I, I left the role as deputy commissioner, um, I said to myself, this is the best job I'm going to ever have, and I might never be back in the government. I needed to make a decision to do that for personal reasons at the time I was undergoing treatment for cancer. Um, I've had that conversation with myself in my, in my head this time again, that I'm walking away from you know a tremendous opportunity, perhaps the best job I'll ever have, and it may be my last job in the government. Well, we will see. We will see you around, hopefully. Thank you, Commissioner Gottlieb. That's it for Paul's Check this week. My thanks to Doug Andres and, of course, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb at FDA for time for the interview, as well as Jenny Ament and Sarah Carlin-Smith at Politico for making this conversation happen, too. If you like Politico Paul's Check, help us by rating or reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app. If you have suggestions for future episodes, Find me. I'm at ddiamondapolitico.com by email. And you'll find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.